IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be talking about one of the most popular mainstream rock bands on the planet, the Foo Fighters. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You know, as much as we joke about having an intern, and by the way, like I, I like the fact that it's still kind of a mystery whether we're going to hire one or not, but... I think we, uh, we, I've gotten like I've gotten legit like <laughs> resumes from people who are like, yeah, I want to be the intern. I want to be monitoring Lana Del Rey news. You know, where do I sign up? And I have to explain to them that this was a joke that you made up, but maybe <laughs> it will manifest. I think it will maybe manifest itself in an actual internship. Who knows? Yeah, because I mean, on Tuesday we could have really just like live tweeted, like or live podcasted, like music Twitter on Tuesday, because like you know the day oh, bega- the day began with uh, an announcement of a new Ice Age single, which you know like. I mean, Real Rock is back, uh, New York uh, music media in a tizzy, and then... Yeah, there, get... were like, there were like nine music writers in Brooklyn <laughs> that got really excited about that Ice Age news. Yeah, and they signed to Mexican Summer, which had just dropped Ariel Pink, so they were really solidifying their grip on, you know, Pitchfork 2014 readers, and then... Wasn't, like, Ice Age ever problematic? Didn't they have, like, Nazi yeah, or something? Yeah, back in the day, like, uh, they kind of toyed around with similar to like Joy Division or a lot of bands in that realm, kind of Nazi iconography. Um, but yeah, I think that was just like them being like edge, like teenage edgelords in, in Denmark. So um, okay. I think they, I think they've gotten out of being any, I think those days of them being considered problematic are long gone. But uh, speaking of, but then, then we heard about a new band or a new artist signed to Sacred Bones who they're going to release an album uh, recorded by an unborn child. Uh, it's yes. like ultrasounds or whatever. And I just, I, I, I'm thinking that, speaking of Ariel Pink, like if this album gets like totally slammed, like you might see them on like Fox News talking about, you know, reproductive rights and like, you know, how like well, music, yeah. music critics don't consider like unborn child to be musicians. So, I mean, I, that that's another possibility. So that that's just like before, that's just before 7 a.m. <laughs> My first thought about like the baby making a record was that like, wow, like now I have reason to feel even more secure about keeping up with the kids. It's like it's hard enough to keep up with like the Zoomers who are teenagers, you know, like that makes me feel old. But now there's like actual like hipster babies making Un- records. Yeah, unborn children. They're not even born yet. Yeah. It's like I got to keep up with the unborn now. Like, yeah. come on, like give me a break here. It's like it's hard enough. As you know, a middle-aged music critic to uh, <laughs> to keep up with these trends, I want to just be worried about people who are actually like out of the womb. Yeah. Now I'm going to be you know fretting about people inside the womb. Also on Tuesday, uh, well, this was later on Tuesday. Yeah. Was the the Morgan Wallen news, ah. which isn't really like normally in the indie sphere, but like Morgan Wallen. You know, he put out that record uh, in January called "Dangerous," the double album, which the double album is like in Part the, of the album title. title, which is like <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. But he was getting you know indie cred. I know Stereo Gum did a feature on him. A uh, lot of people did. I don't think, I don't think Pitchfork reviewed that. They record. did. They did. They they did. They, they, they it, did review it. It was it was pos- It was like positive, but kind of like keeping a li- basically saying like, yeah, this is good stuff. Uh, there's also 30 songs on here, and it gets a little tiresome. But um, right. it, it, it's, but- it's representative of what I feel is like that creeping sense. If you can't beat them, join them. It's like there's nothing out right now. Well, this- yeah, there's nothing. Well, well, I'll just say about about Wallen that like okay, because this is like where I stepped in it this week on Twitter. I, I stepped in it in like sort of like a, a minor way, but like mm-hmm. I've been listening to that Morgan Wallen record, and you know. I've been kind of enjoying it. I have a weakness for that kind of country music because it reminds me of like being on a pontoon boat in the middle of summer, Mm. like listening to like really slick sounding country music and you're drinking like a Miller High Life 
and you're just like kind of like dawdling down like a nice you know like river channel off of like a off of a lake and you have no cares in the world and it's like yeah like in this environment i I do want to hear a song called sand in my boots you know (laughs) this is like kind of speaking to me so i was tweeting about this on tuesday morning the same you know day that you were talking about and then like literally 10 hours later tmz reports that he's like yelling the n-word yeah. in his own driveway and and i'm like man wh- why did this have to be the same day that i had to like you know stump for morgan wallen you know i i would have preferred although i'm glad that it didn't happen the, the following day because sometimes you go on twitter and you don't check the news yeah and uh you know it would have been funny if i had gone on twitter after this had been reported and i was like oh yeah morgan wallen has some great songs yeah. <laughs> about being on a pontoon boat yeah. that that probably then i probably would have been canceled yeah the, the, so i'm glad that didn't happen but. yeah there is a phenomenon sometimes where like music like something like that happens and you realize like oh crap when was the last time i said something positive about this artist and then it gets into the whole it's like do you support like the you supporting this artist does this like equate to supporting their views and i think with morgan wallen it was like one of the things I think really troubled people was how much stuff, problematic stuff beforehand that was like being overlooked. And when I say like the can't beat him, join him sort of thing, well, it's like, well, yeah, he did kind of violate COVID things and he, you know, isn't paying child support to his kid or whatever. But like, you know, he's that rap scallion who's like making that pop music with trap drums and all this. And I mean, he, like, I think it's been said, you know, you get kind of some strange bedfellows or like looking for love in all the wrong places type thing happening when you're really just trying to like report on music trends as if it were sports as opposed to like treating it from like a critical standpoint. But um, but I, I mean, it's just kind of like, it's unbelievable, though, that like he's actually like being pulled. For, like he's seeing like real deal consequences in real time. Oh, yeah. Like, well, and I think he's definitely bearing the brunt of like a lot of neglect in the country music industry yeah. in regards to race. It seems like, you know, I mean, I I think it's appropriate for his. I mean, his record label, I guess, suspended him. I, I'm not really whatever sure that, that means. means yeah, <laughs> if he's like sent to detention or something, like, or you know, he can't go to class now, like for like two weeks. I, I'm not sure what that means, but um, you know, like the ACMs said that like they're not going to consider him in categories. I mean, the big thing with him is that like. Cumulus and I think even iHeartRadio's like just deep sixed him from their playlist and like country radio is still like a huge deal in the country music industry. So to be like taken out like Dixie Chick style yeah. is like a big thing for him. And I don't know how long that's gonna last. But uh, I mean, I didn't know some of the stuff from his past. Like apparently he like dropped an n-word on twitter like when he was 18 because he was quoting like a meek mill lyric or something so like he's had a history of that sort of thing um but this was like a much like less serious story but like speaking of like you know indie people caring about country (laughs) music there was also that that dolly parton story this week where she's gonna be like in a super bowl commercial Uh singing like a re-recorded version of nine to five called five to nine Mm -hmm. where it's like a song about like side hustles, basically, like, yeah. people having to take additional jobs in order to pay the rent. And I don't know what the context of that's going to be, but I mean, the way it was presented in the press release, it made it. They called it an ode yes. to side hustles. <laughs> you know, whereas I think a lot of people would say, "Oh, this is kind of a terrible thing about capitalism that people have to work." a side hustle uh, just to, you know, put food on the table. So, like, Dolly Parton, who's been, like, this sort of sainted figure now, and there's, like, lots of good jokes that you see. Like, I've seen people make fun of, like, sort of the prototypical, like, Brooklyn hipster person who, like, just stands for Dolly Parton all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of funny. And, look, I love Dolly Parton. I think she's a great artist and just, like, a very you know endearing personality mm-hmm. um but it was interesting to see her kind of take some guff online yeah. this week for that uh for that whole thing yeah i think that um like with with many things uh in following music like the moment you find out the person that you've elevated to this like sainted thing um like the moment you find out they don't share your exact politics or that like Rich people live very different lives than us. Um, it, 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 it causes people to have like a lot of 
uh, anxiety about it. Now, Dolly Parton, I think, like, on the whole, like, you know, people are still, like, she's still, like, a very much a force for good. Um, but it, it, it was just kind of, it, it's more funny to see the hand-wringing about it, where it's like, yeah, she's maybe not, like, a card-carrying um, socialist or whatever. Or that, you know, she, <laughs> she, she's like willing to like make a song like, like, you know, you hear it's like, oh, five, nine, that's kind of fun. That's kind of a joke. Like maybe you don't think of like the huge like class warfare in, in, in you know, indications. But I mean, what, like our podcast is a side hustle. You know, I, I like, I guess we're just, oh, built. I've got many side I, hustles. Yeah, I guess we're just I've, built I've got different. Like three or four side hustles. Yeah. Hustle mentality, man. Rise and grind. It's 7 a.m. I'm up podcasting. <laughs> But you know, like getting on a yeah. getting on a microphone and, and and talking about Morgan Whalen <laughs> yeah. isn't really that hard of a job. It's a pretty no. great job. And I will say too that Dolly Parton was probably glad to see the Morgan Wallen story happen yeah. because if anyone was tempted to write like a think piece about Dolly Parton, like Morgan Wallen pretty much drop kicked. Oh god, any, yeah. You know, Dolly Parton think pieces out, out the out the door this week. Since we're like talking a lot about Twitter here in our <laughs> preamble section. <laughs> We haven't really talked about the Eve Six guy. Yeah, it's uh, long, time, yeah, long time coming, guy. man. <laughs> yeah, his Twitter account, and like, I feel like we're finally inspired, or I'm I'm inspired to bring it up because you sent me a tweet this yeah. week where he was like talking smack about Bush, and uh. Uh, which was annoying. And like, look, just to backtrack here a little bit for people who aren't like extremely online, <laughs> the singer from Eve Six, his name's Max Collins, I think. Nah, it's Max. It, it's definitely Max. Ma- Max something. <laughs> he got on Twitter, I guess, like a like a couple months ago. Yeah. And his account kind of became like a minor sensation because, like, he has like a pretty good sense of humor, and it's like a very like ironic and self aware mm-hmm. sense of humor. So he was kind of making fun of like basically being a guy in a alt rock band that like no one really cares about anymore. Mm. And I think a lot of people found it endearing and they thought, Oh, uh, the Eve six guy, he's on Twitter. Isn't he funny? And I kind of thought it was funny at first, but then after a while it started to get like a little tiresome Mm. and you could start to see that, like, is this going to be like a way that people have comebacks now? Like where, you know, you can't do the reunion tour, really. So, like, you're going to go on Twitter and you're going to adopt this sort of, like, knowing, self-aware, uh, you know, persona where, like, you're laughing at yourself and you're letting other people laugh at your, at you. But, like, there's sort of, like, an acknowledgement that we're all in on the joke together. Mm-hmm. Like, like Hoobastank, the guy from Hoobastank. Yeah. He put out something recently where he apologized for the band name. He's like, no one's perfect. No, I'm not a perfect person. That's the lyric from The Reason. That's that's why it's funny. Oh. That's why it's funny. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. So do, do it I have- seem like the Hoobastank guy saw the, the Eve Six guy and he's like, oh, wait, this is the new gold rush. Like yeah. the ironic alt-rock like has-been act. That's going to be the new thing. But then it's like you're taking shots at Bush for being a crappy band. It's like... Dude, Gavin Rossdale wrote Glycerine, man, <laughs> yeah. and he and he married Gwen Stefani. Like, what have you done besides yeah. be ironic on Twitter? He he wrote the Heart in a Blender song, which is kind of the annoying thing because he refers to um, Inside Out as the Heart in the Blender song, the most memorable lyric. But I think that, like, first off, like Bush has written at least five good songs. Like, let's not like undersell what yeah. Gavin Rossdale and company have accomplished over the years. But you're you're right in that it's been like. There, it's so easy to endear yourself to people by like, especially if like you're an alt rock guy from like back in the day by like kind of making fun of yourself. Like Hootie and the Blowfish, uh, they did that a bit, and all of a sudden you get into the New York Times. Hootie and the Blowfish, like was Hootie and the Blowfish a great American band? Uh, Art from Everclear has been good about that, but Art from Everclear has like a lot of really awesome stories. Um, but that's yeah, I think like Eve Six like kind of found a cheat code. Um, because when it comes right down to it, when we're talking about like all these stories so far about like the baby, uh, Dolly Parton and, and Eve six, particularly, we are so bored right now, <laughs> like as, oh, a, yeah. a, a, as a culture, like we are almost approaching a year of lockdown and it's soon enough. We'll have like memories of being in lockdown last year or like, you know, the pandemic starting and we were just like so damn bored that anything that can take our attention like for like eat like the guy from eve six 
you know, airing out stories about uh, late 90s alt-rock, which, by the way, is very entertaining because that was, like, amongst the last uh, eras where there was just, like, a lot of money flowing around in alt-rock. You know, that was, like... Oh, yeah. You and, get great stories from that era. So I can I can hear like, them all you know, day. <laughs> if, I could, if I could go to a bar and hang out with Max, I, I, I'm sure I'd have a great time. I, I would love to hear stories about, you know, being at the MTV Beach House and, you know, playing the same song over and over again for like bikini clad teenagers you know, i'm sure like he's got a lot of great stories like that but you know to go back to gavin rossdale for a minute you know i feel like the, the thing i appreciate about gavin rossdale because like i'm not a huge bush fan yeah. but the thing i suspect about gavin rossdale is that like he doesn't have a sense of people thinking that he's lame you know, I don't think that he would have that kind of self-aware gene in him. And, like, I find that actually endearing at this point. Yeah. You know, the the the, the sort of malign band that doesn't recognize why they're maligned. But <laughs> they just kind of go about their business and they think, yeah, we're actually great. And, the, you know, the haters somehow don't get to them. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Gavin Rossdale does know that but like that my, my sense of him is that he doesn't or and why would he he's like an extremely handsome man who's very rich and i'm sure he has a great life yeah. uh even though like gwen stefani left him for blake shelton which mm. is like a terrible insult uh but you know the the self-aware thing i just feel like like you said it feels like a bit of a cheat code mm-hmm. sometimes and uh, i just like want to be i i, I kind of like a 90s rock star who's like yeah i'm awesome and I've always been awesome, and I'm still awesome, even if they aren't. Well, you know? that's like, that's that that's belief. third eye blind. That's the third eye blind guy, and he's got a lot of right. There, there are a lot of things wrong with. Um, well, I won't I won't get into that, but you, well, yeah, yeah. If, well, if, that, if you ask the right, yeah, if you ask the right people, you'll you'll hear about that, dude. <laughs> yeah, that that may be a story in the future. We'll see. Yeah. Um, well, let's go to our mailbag segment, and uh, our uh, listener question this week comes from Joe M. And he's from Madison, Wisconsin. I got to shout out my fellow Wisconsinites out there. Yes. Joe, thanks for writing in. Uh, In the last Mailbag episode, you or Ian mentioned that (laughs) Manchester Orchestra is a band that could benefit from a good Greatest Hits album. That was Ian, by the way, who said that. Can you think of other 21st century indie bands that fit this need? Or are the Spotify This Is Band X playlist the new Greatest Hits album? Um, great question, Joe. I'm going to, before we get into like, because Ian and I both have a lot of thoughts about this, about mm-hmm. bands that we think could benefit from a Greatest Hits album. I just want to do, though, like, just to, just to kind of answer the second part of that question first. I actually feel like Greatest Hits albums do have a use, even if they're not like a physical album. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, these Spotify playlists, I've noticed or Apple Music playlists, like, if you're actually a fan of the band and you listen to some of these playlists, like, they're p- pretty poorly assembled mm. a lot of the time. And the thing I think that's great about, like, the best Greatest Hits albums is that you feel the hand of a cu- of a curator at work, you know? Like, yeah, there's some hits on that record, but there's also maybe some carefully selected songs from like the deep cuts that complement the hits that make a Greatest Hits album stand alone as, like, something that can really act as like a primer for people to get into an artist. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think if we think of like the, like the best examples of that and, you know, that's a whole other discussion talking about the, the best greatest hits albums, but I think you really feel that in a way that you don't always from playlists. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm saying that like the people who make these playlists, like, they should get better people to do them. <laughs> like maybe that's the problem, or or maybe we need like you know to bring greatest hits albums back. Uh, but I, I definitely think there's a use for it. But um, as far as like an artist that would really benefit from this, I mean, I've got a couple thoughts. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I know you disagree with this because we've talked about this a little bit before uh, we recorded. But like the first artist that came to my mind was Beach House, huh. uh, which is an act I really like. I know a lot of people. A lot of huge Beach House fans out there, people who love all their albums. I know that for me, I tend to love like two or three songs from each record that like I'll listen to those songs on repeat and then like the rest of the record kind of blends into the background. And I just feel like if you took those two or three songs from each record and made one super record, I would love it. I mean, because I just think that they're like a vibey band. And if you don't have like a really strong song in the middle of those vibes... You just have the vibes, and they're very pleasant. And I, you know, it's 
it's a pleasure to listen to them in a lot of ways, but like it's also like a little bit boring for me over the course of an entire record. So I feel like they would really benefit from that. Um, what about you? Like who, who comes to mind as far as like what like who would benefit from a greatest hits record? Well, you were mentioning about how the Spotify essential or the the Apple like such and such essentials or this is band X type playlist don't really like suit the need. Uh, they do seem like really haphazard um, and not like they're curated, but like not well. Like I think if you go to the Jimmy Eat World um, Apple Essentials, it begins with like a demo version of the middle. So which, you know, I guess would be like really contrarian or counterintuitive, but it doesn't really suit the need. Um, Beach House is a band I'll like get traced back to in a minute. But like I think there are two types of uh like two types of acts that I think would really benefit from a great, like a really intentionally put together greatest hit, similar to the one the weekend put together prior to the Super Bowl performance. But they're, they're, they're the ones who've just never really nailed it as an album. Like these bands remind me of like uh, the CDs I would buy in the nineties. Cause I saw like a couple songs on MTV and I liked them and I really only liked those two songs, but I kept the CD around and I would all like have these weird positive associations with it where I think it's way better than it is. And um, a lot of those bands are British nowadays. They're the ones I see at like 6 p.m. every two years at Coachella, for example. Uh, Foles come to mind. They're a band that's like released a lot of really great singles and like they've never put more than five on an album. Like Total Life Forever, the first half is awesome. And then I forget every other song on it. Same with Holy Fire. Uh, The Horrors, Hot Chip, I know people would disagree with me on that one, but like they have like two or three really awesome songs that, like that would and they would really benefit from having them all put together because there's like a through line of like their kind of sent like you know their their sensibilities and also i know the drums aren't british but like they might as well be with the style of music they played very under like it's very underappreciated how popular that band is but i think if you put their songs together in like a playlist that people would really start to recognize like how good they've been and how consistent they've been. It's just, they never made an album that I would give like over a seven, five and then beach house. I, I want to do like one, oh. I, I want to do like one quick interjection here. Cause like, this is cause this, as far as like bands that have like a lot of records, like a lot of good songs, but they've never made like one sort of go to great album. Yeah. I would also add the band woods. Ah, yes. Uh, who is a band that like, I really, I pretty much like all of their records, but yeah. like I wouldn't say that there's a like a particular record that I love. Yeah, and I think that if you com- compiled like a really good greatest hits in a similar way to like what was done for like the Brian Jonestown massacre, they have this great <laughs> compilation called Tepid Peppermint Wonderland, which huh. is like a great album, and they're like the total epitome of a band that has like. So many scattershot records, but if you compile if you compile like all their jams into like one like really well made compilation, it it just works extremely well. Uh, so I put Woods in there, and I'd also put Ty Seagal mm. in there, yeah. uh, who's someone he's like one of those people that just makes like two or three records every year at this point, mm. and he, he's another one like where I I tend to like I like a lot of his stuff, but again I don't think he's made like that defining masterpiece. That like you would go to and just listen to it from beginning to end, but I think even like a double disc compilation for Ty Seagal like would just bang from beginning to end. I think yeah. that would be really great. Yeah, I, the thing about Woods is like I, I I've I've looked at this before, and I think there's no band that has like a more consistent like Metacritic score. Like every single one of their album is like 78 or something like that. It's just like eerily consistent but i think yeah woods would be a great band for it ty siegel even i'd listen to that probably because you know you got a couple songs that i dig um but there's you when you talk about like beach house or like ty seagal like this kind of makes me think of another uh type of greatest hits album that would really be beneficial i think which is you know how maybe like you know if you're anything like me you you own those like double cds uh for the beatles greatest hits at first before you got in the albums one was red one was blue. The blue one, I believe, was like the second half of the career, like 67 to 70. And I think Beach House would be great for one of those if you did everything past Teen Dream. Teen Dream to me is like the one. And after that, like every album they put out is like really enjoyable to me. But like I think to myself, huh, 
when was the last time I listened to Seven all the way through or Depression Cherry all the way through? And a similarly, like Deer Hunter post Halcyon Digest, like those albums are good, but like I never think like, oh, I'd really like to listen to Fading Frontier end to end. Um, same with like Real Estate, After Days, um, just bands of that nature who I think at this point we kind of take them for granted because they're no longer at the center of uh, indie rock discussion, but they're still making good records. And I know like when you talk to Real Estate for their last album, um, you know, they kind of talked about like what it's like to be kind of on the, not the downside, because like they're still doing really well, but um, like what happens when you've kind of tipped over to being a little outside the center of like what, you know, what you used to be. And, um, you know, you like, I think that they, you put together like second half career, like post peak greatest hits for those kind of bands. I think that they'd be reappreciated. And also I would say I would listen to a nice age greatest hits album. They have a couple songs that I really dig on each album, but I'm more just, you know, kind of against the whole way they're talked about. Well, this is a good segue to our main topic of this episode. It's a band that actually does have a greatest hits album, but I feel like if you could somehow compile like the best songs from every album, the after, best, the best, the best, maybe the after, best. yeah, call that. <laughs> maybe every album, like since uh, you know, like after one by one, I feel like one by one is like the end of like a certain era for them. Huh. Anyway, I'm talking about the Foo Fighters, by the way. I'm talking about Foo Fighters albums like people would know them by name. I feel like the Foo (laughs) Fighters are a band. They're not necessarily like an album band. They're like maybe more of like a song band. But we'll we'll get into that as we get into our discussion here. The reason that we're talking about the Foo Fighters is that they have a new album out today. It's called Medicine at Midnight. And um, I actually, I wrote something about Foo Fighters that is going to run, I think, on Monday, the Monday after this podcast post. I wrote about their entire career. And I was going to review this album, uh, but like I've reviewed the last couple Foo Fighters <laughs> records. Uh, and I was like, I can't review another yeah. late period Foo Fighters record because you kind of say the same thing. I mean, I'm professionally obligated to listen to these albums. I'm kind of interested on a personal level, but like, I would say like their 2010s work, I guess going into the twenties, uh, not very good. I'll just say that. Like, have you heard this record, Medicine uh, at Midnight? You know, you, you mentioned like how just that the feedism of like, oh my god, like I got to review another Foo Fighters album, even though they don't come out very often. But we this kind of connects to last week. Um, we talked about Weezer. It's like if with, with this band, with Weezer, with Smashing Pumpkins, like you're pretty solid if you review one out of like every three albums they put out, because then you can come back at it with like. A refre- like, you know, maybe say the things you would have said six years ago, but they're new to you. But, um, you know, like a Foo Fighters album, like, you know, like our like our podcasting brothers in arms might say uh, music exists, you know, <laughs> like this Foo Fighters album. It, it, it definitely exists. It is out there. You can stream it. You can buy it. Um, and I like you, you mentioned one by one uh, a little while. I'm like, I don't remember that year. Like, I don't remember when. Uh, that was 02. That was, that, o- that was like the record with All My Life. Uh, and, that song uh, kind of rocks. Times Like These. Yeah, uh, that was like right around the time of their of Dave Grohl's Queens of the Stone yes, Age. Yes, yeah. Dalliance. And like that record definitely has like a Queens of the Stone Age type sound. But getting back to Medicine at Midnight for a yeah. moment here. You know, I reviewed Sonic Highways. I reviewed oh. Concrete and Gold. Huh. Which like. I, if you could name the 2017 <laughs> Foo Fighters album, you're either like a huge Foo Fighters fan or you're like a professional music critic yeah. who gets assigned Foo Fighters I, records. I reviewed an EP, like, the EP that he did. Oh, uh, whatever Saint that Cecilia. One was yes, I did that one. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm, I'm telling you, man, I can rattle off the names of like second and third tier Foo Fighters albums like, like you would never believe. But like, uh, you know... As someone who has like listened to all these records and written about them, you know, I can hear that Dave Grohl, in his own way, is trying to sort of bring Foo Fighters forward, or in some way, slightly reinvent what they do. Like if you read the the uh, stories that have been written about the new record, it's been branded as like kind of like a dancey type record, like where they're playing <laughs> oh, with like God. dance influences, oh, and there's been elements of that on other records 
And, you know, it just doesn't come off that well. I mean, like, there's like these sort of like pointlessly complicated time signatures, you know, they're, they're trying to get funky in the rhythm section and it kind of falls flat. And Dave Grohl is, you know, doing like, he does that like voice. I'm trying to describe it. It's, it's kind of like Lemmy meets Paul Stanley, <laughs> like that very sort of like hopped up arena rock growly voice that he does. Huh. Like there's a song on the new record called No Son of Mine. I don't know if you've heard this song. The Genesis cover? Like his... No, exactly. Wow. I thought of that too, which is like a great reference. That's like, like we can't dance era Genesis, which uh, is like uh, very off brand dance record. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe. Ah, uh, there you go. There we go. But like no, that song, No Son of Mine, like, Dave Grohl's phrasing in that song is like very James Hetfield sounding. <laughs> like he's doing like no set of mine, no set of mine, you know. And um, the thing I realized about Foo Fighters, because you know, again, I, I wrote this piece that's going to run next week where I revisited their entire catalog and uh, I, I wrote a list basically ranking their favorite songs, uh, their, their best songs. Guess what song's number one, by the way, on the best Foo Fighters songs list? It's like the least. Uh, surprising choice of all time. Oh, Everlong. Uh, for, Ever- for the, yeah, exactly. Everlong's like you the best song put, of the 90s. Like, yeah. you can't, yeah, like the gap. It, look, I'm spoiling my own list, but like, if you don't expect Everlong to be at the top of a yeah. Foo Fighters list, then I don't know what you're thinking. Because I think like the gap between Everlong and every other Foo Fighters song is maybe wider than it is for any other major rock band. Ooh. Like, with their best song versus like the rest of their catalog. You know, like for like most bands, you would say like, well, there's like a good dozen songs in contention for like what could be credibly called their best song. With Foo Fighters, if it's Everlong. And if you don't <laughs> say Everlong, then like you're just trying too hard to be contrarian, yeah. I think. But the thing I realized about Foo Fighters is that like their most popular songs are almost always their best songs. Yeah. Like they don't, they don't really have like a lot of like great deep cuts, mm-hmm. right? I, I, or am I wrong well, about that? The, the, I mean, I would not say I, I have no idea because, like, you know, the post Queens of the Stone Age, you know, ambassador of rock, Dave Grohl. Like, I don't know those deep cuts, but you know, you look back on the first Foo Fighters record, and I mean, there are some great deep cuts on that. Like that album to me, like, right. and it's so hard to you know, consider Dave Grohl to be cool at one point. But I think, like, back in when that came out in 94 or 95, it almost, to me, like, was, like, you know, the Breeders' last splash. You know, the like, it, you know, the Pixies right. being Nirvana, the side project. And it's just this cobbled together, um, like, uh, hodgepodge of, like, alt-rock sounds from the 90s. And, like, look, if I were at Coachella and Dave Grohl pulled out, like, Ecstatic, you know, the song he did, like the shoegaze song he did with Greg Dooley or like Weenie Beanie. Uh, yeah, I'd be super stoked for that. But uh, Oh, what? yeah, or Exhausted. Or Exhausted. Or, or George. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, like certainly like the first three records, I think, yeah. are apart from the rest. <laughs> and there are, I think, more deep cuts on those records than uh, there are on the later records. Like mm-hmm. where it seems like once you get into the aughts, like there's a real focus on let's have two or three just monster radio songs and like all the attention goes on that and the rest of the album sounds a little filler ish. I mean like you, you look at a song like the pretender for instance, that comes out in 2007. Uh. That was like a top 40 pop hit. I mean, Uh. I think that was like their last song that entered the top 40. Uh, But like Foo Fighters had like songs like that, you know, best of you all my life. Uh, you know, that were not just big rock hits, but they like did pretty well on pop radio too. But it is interesting, like you say, going back to that first record, which I feel like is kind of lost now a little bit, like mm-hmm. in like the Foo Fighters world. Like I saw the Foo Fighters in 2018 Jesus. and they didn't play a single song from that record. What? And not, not even I'll Stick Around or Big Me. I mean, like those no, are enormous hits. no. Huh. No, no songs. And, and and believe me, they could have because there was a drum solo <laughs> and a guitar solo. And there were like several classic rock covers. Like they did like another one bites the dust and all this stuff. And, you know, and they're a good live band. And I think that's really become like their bread and butter in the last, say, 10 years. Like when their pop hits have really dried up and like, 
you know, I, and I think the major weakness of like these last three records, I think going back to like Wasting Light, like Wasting Light to me was like their last gasp, I think, uh-huh. as like making like big radio songs. That song, that album has like Walk on it and Rope. I and, don't know what those songs uh, sound like. <laughs> if you heard them, you would probably recognize them okay. because they were like fairly uh, like played on the radio in their time and they probably still are. But like the the last three records, I think what's missing is that you know core of like two or three undeniable songs that like get played on the radio that kind of justify the rest of the record. And like you hear them make stabs for that, but they don't really quite get there. It's, it's, it just feels like maybe that aspect of what they do is dried up a bit. But they've compensated by becoming this stadium rock band, really like that. Really. To me, like when I saw them live, it wasn't just that they were like the Foo Fighters, but it was almost like we're here representing rock music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like we're playing a show for people that maybe this is the only rock show they're going to see this year and maybe for like a couple years. Because again, they were doing all of these sort of like generic rock type stuff. Again, like the drum solo, the guitar solo, mm-hmm. all these like classic rock covers. They covered Breakdown by Tom Petty. Oh, man. You know? And it just seemed like, yeah, like we're here to represent rock, so we're gonna do a little bit of every, uh, a little bit of like you know all over the map here. But yeah, like they didn't play anything off the first record, and that's still my favorite, I guess, along with the color and the shape. Yeah. Like, but like that first record, which was basically a demo that Dave Grohl recorded by himself, it feels more like, uh, like it wasn't just tailored for, you know, radio stations in Cincinnati and Tulsa. You know, like. <laughs> It feels like a little more personal to yeah. me. It's and it's maybe more indie sounding, <laughs> I guess. Than oh yeah, even even by the color and the shape. Like you listen to Monkey Wrench, mm-hmm. like that song is like the blueprint for like I think their big singles after that. Yeah, that kind of like hammer over the head, screaming the you know chorus type song that just works on the radio. Uh, and they really kind of became a different band, you know, after that point. Yeah, I think with the color and the shape, like when you talk about like the per like the personality of it, like that record I think was uh, influenced by his breakup with uh, one of the uh, artists in Veruca Salt. So, you know, that kind of ties yeah, into Lu- Louise Post. That's it. Yeah. And also like that album is kind of like grandfathered into modern emo because it was produced by Gil Norton who did Jimmy Eat World's Futures. Uh, at, they famously incorporated half of uh, Sunday Day Real Estate's lineup, but like kicked out William Goldsmith, the drummer, because Dave Grohl thought he could do the drum parts better. William Goldsmith still very mad about that online. Um, and, right? Yeah, I mean, he's in the documentary too. By the way, yeah. he's in the and which I'd recommend to people, like even if you don't like Foo Fighters, their documentary Back and Forth, which came out in like twenty eleven, is like surprisingly candid. Huh. And like William Goldsmith is in the movie, yeah. And um, I, I, I actually respect Dave Grohl for like letting him be in the movie. Yeah, and he's mad. He is mad. He's mad about a lot of things. And like he, and you know, to be clear, like Grohl didn't fire him. What he did was like he re-recorded the drum parts behind his back, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, and then still said like, "Well, I want you to be in the band. I want you to like tour." And Goldsmith was like. You've just like shattered my confidence yeah. like forever. I can't stand this band. So then he, so he left. Yeah. But you could say that he was like, you know, pushed off the ledge. Yeah. I guess, but he did technically jump off yeah. himself. But that, but, but that, yeah, it is like that it, it, it kind of sounds emo-ish. Yeah, like because you when I've talked um, to the Get Up Kids when they made their uh, album "Sun the Right Home" about, they're like, yeah, we were listening to Summer Teeth. Uh, and the color and the shape. And it was a huge influence on Bleed American as well. Uh, it's kind of that like uh, triangulation between like the Husker Du slash Sugar stuff that like Dave Roll wanted to do and Sunday Day Real Estate and Future Jimmy Eat World. Also, February Stars is like a total hum ripoff. So uh, they had that going on as well. But I think that what happened after that is, you know, you're talking about like the way Dave Grohl seems to be getting in the mindset of like, you know, a DJ in Cincinnati or Tulsa or like one of those other markets. But I going from, you know, there's nothing enough to lose. He kind of became this like rock ambassador type person where if you make a documentary about the power of rock music, like Dave, you've got to get Dave Grohl on there. 
Um, and like playing another one bites the dust and like breakdown in a stadium, like that to me signifies like what Dave Grohl's about. And he, you know, his, his desire to be this, you know, like it's kind of, it's like kind of uncle rock, you know, it's like where it's not like dad rock, but it's like the kind of uncle who might slip you a beer, like when your dad's not looking, but like still kind of take care of you. And when I think about like where they're at right now, and I think about you know his desire to be rock ambassador and like what's happening this weekend, they the Foo Fighters played the inauguration. Like that's a pretty big deal. But I really think that when they they had their heart set on playing the Super Bowl halftime show, like every single thing that I think this band has done since uh, the Color and the Shape has been in an attempt to be at Super Bowl halftime show. And not just to be like, wow, the Foo Fighters have been one of our most like popular rock bands of, you know, the past 25 years, but it's like to to kind of say something about like rock music in general, you know? Uh like even if Dave Grohl were to have to play this halftime show in an empty stadium, uh, which is kind of what's happening now, he would still do it because it would it would be a statement about the power of rock music to span the generations. And, you know, he says all the right things about like Billy Eilish, the new Kurt Cobain or whatever. He'd bring in some guest stars to show like, you know, their connection to the greater pop world. Um, but I think in reality, like he's, they're perfect for the inauguration because I think there's like a very kind of agreeable unity, Joe Biden esque message to a lot of what they do. You know, it's like, Oh, good old, good old Dave Grohl. You know, he's, He'll bring us back to those the the good old days, and um, as far as like how this album will do one way or the other, I mean, it I I have I I I would love to talk to a really passionate like Foo Fighters fan. Like I've been thinking about this my um, you know over the past twenty years. Like, is there someone who like really loves and or hates hates Foo Fighters albums? Like, is there someone there who, are you know? Is there someone who's like one by, I mean, I, one by one is garbage, but wasting light like they. I, I hear from them and like, you know, and I think, I think there's passionate fans and I also think that there's an element to them that I think this was true of like, you know, like later day Rolling Stones, like when people would go to see the Stones at the stadium in their town, it's like they identify as rock fans, but like, maybe they're not like hardcore fans, but like they just want to go see a rock show and it's like, maybe the Rolling Stones is like, they're like, oh, well, I don't really know any new bands, but like, I know the Rolling Stones and they're a rock band. I'm going to go see them. And I think Foo Fighters are like taking that mantle. Like when the Rolling Stones finally have to retire, yeah, the Foo Fighters are going to be the new Rolling Stones. Well, I mean, the... And like they're going to be, and Dave Grohl's going to be touring when he's like seventy-five, yeah, playing these songs. And like you talk about the Super Bowl halftime show, I have no doubt that they will eventually play that halftime show. I really think that will happen, and. I can imagine the set list. Like it's gonna be <laughs> my hero, song. my hero followed well, by no. my hero well, followed by my hero. Well, no, it's gonna be like the first song will be like whatever their single is. You got to promote that. Then it's gonna be my. Then it's gonna be learn to fly. Yes. Then it's gonna be my hero, and then it's gonna conclude with best of you. Yeah. And it will kill. That yeah. will kill those songs. Like the thing with the Foo Fighters, and I realized this when I was writing my piece that like. This is a band that I generally appreciate. Like, I'm not a huge fan of the Foo Fighters, but I appreciate what they do. And I think Dave Grohl is a very appealing guy. I, I respect what he does. But it's like, I notice that like whenever I write about them, it's hard to write about them and even talk about them on this show without like making fun of them. Yeah. You know, because it's like there's a lot of things that are kind of like that you can nitpick with them that are kind of easy to laugh at. But a lot of the things, even like the negative things we're saying about them, actually kind are of like positive. Yeah, if, kind if, of endearing. If you put them in like in a, well, if you put them like in an arena rock context or a Super Bowl type show con- like context, the the negatives about them being like a little broad, a little like you know vague, you know like lyrically the songs don't really mean anything at all. <laughs> you know, musically it's like, it's very obvious. It kind of beats you over the head. But if you like put that at the Super Bowl. All that stuff works great. It's like you want music that's really broad and obvious to be in that kind of uh, environment. And like, again, if they play like their crappy new single, then play Learn to Fly, Mm. My Hero, and Best of You, 
I would probably be like cheering that halftime show. I think that would be actually like a pretty yeah. great halftime show. And they kind of work perfectly in that environment. Making like a new record where they're like dabbling in dance rhythms. Yeah. Not so much. That's not their strength at this point. But yeah, put them at the Super Bowl show halftime show. And I think they might kill it. Yeah, give them some guest stars or whatever. Like they'll they'll do that, and you know, like just someone rapping over my hero or whatever. Like it, Dave Grohl will be down for that. So I mean, I, I just think that this year, like this year, was kind of the year uh, for them to do it. And uh, I don't know, but they play the inaug- They play times like these, the inauguration. Uh, kind of a nice moment like a melding of like uh, a band's uh, sentimentality and a politician's sentimentality and look i mean they exist i'm glad dave grohl will you know if i met dave grohl i'm sure him and i would have a lot to talk about i'm sure he'd be a cool guy but i mean you know it it i i already forgot what this new album is called so <laughs> All right, we've now reached the part of our episode called Recommendation Corner, where we each talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so what I, if you've seen me on Twitter, like you know that I'm like I'm pretty excited about this uh, compilation uh, for charity called No Earbuds Compilation. It's put together by uh, Jamie Coletta, who's been just a real fixture in this scene for years and years and years. It's kind of weird to be talking up like what is essentially like a PR person, but I think that she in her time has like really, you know, helped this wave of music that you would call like hardcore punk or emo, uh, get into, uh, you know, kind of get into the mainstream. And when you look at this band, the look at the track list for this compilation, it's a bunch of bands that she represents and works with, uh, covering each other. So you have Cara Cara covering Barty's strange Mustang. You have uh, Joey van, from uh from indian lakes a band that i really love doing like an extremely chill cover of uh dog legs kawasaki backflip that really works um and for the one that like the fact that it's for a charitable cause it's great but i think it really gives a sense of like the community that uh she's really helped foster within the emo punk you know, feeling stuff, music <laughs> subgenre. Um, and it's something that's like really kind of been missing uh, over the past year because you'd know that these bands would be touring together. You'd be seeing like, you know, Oso Oso and like Dog Leg touring together or like Cara Cara and Barty Strange. And since you can't get that sense of allegiance, uh, a lot of these covers are really awesome to begin with. But secondly, it's more that you kind of get a sense that even in an online pandemic setting, there's still uh, communication going on between bands. And that's really what Jamie's been all about. So I think this is kind of like a culmination of the hard, awesome work that she's done over the past uh, decade. Awesome. Yeah. Jamie Coletta, love you. Thanks for all your work. She's a great publicist, great person mm-hmm. all around. Um, I'm a, I want to talk about a record called Urban Driftwood made by, a guitarist from Virginia named Yasmin Williams. And mm. this record has been getting like a, a fair amount of attention, I think more so than like a lot of instrumental guitar records that come <laughs> out over the course of the year. There's like a lot of these kind of records that come out from that, you know, underground, like primitive folk scene. And um, I think the reason why this record has stood out is that like, if you listen to like a lot of records that come out of that world, you can hear like a really strong influence from like John Fahey. Yeah. You know, he is definitely the main touchstone for artists of this kind. And uh, even like the records that are good, it could be hard to really distinguish like one from the other. It seems like there's a lot of similarities going on, a lot of shared influences. And the thing with this record is that unlike a lot of instrumental guitar records that sort of like lean into sort of the primitive aspect of this music, that when you listen to Urban Driftwood, there's something just like really kind of layered and lush and like big sounding about it, like where it's actually sounds like more than the sum of its parts. And I think that has a lot to do with just like Yasmin Williams technique uh, as a guitar player. Yeah, I would say like even if you're like not like a, a, a guitar person, you know, if you're not the kind of person that looks up, you know, guitarists on YouTube or something to see how they play. Look up Yasmin Williams because I think the way she plays is like really interesting and cool. Like she has this 
finger picking style where she plays in a conventional kind of way but then like in the middle of the song she actually like put her like acoustic guitar on her lap yeah. and play that way and then be doing like you know Eddie Van Halen type like finger taps mm-hmm. on it as well and it's really like mesmerizing to watch but more than that i think musically it creates this sound that like again you can draw a line from it to like those other instrumental guitar records records that are drawing really on the roots of american music you know and, and folk and blues and and jazz but also really kind of taking those sounds in like a new direction that again to me creates like a bigger sound it's not just about thinking that this is one person playing this like sometimes you feel like there's almost like a symphonic quality mm-hmm. to this record uh that is like totally unique and totally mesmerizing and uh it's been a record that like i've really loved and taken a lot of solace in uh you know in, in recent weeks so uh even if you're not a person that normally listens to this kind of music i would really recommend checking it out because again i feel like this feels like a record that is really kind of crossing over mm-hmm. in like a small way to people uh, you know, who aren't normally in like the primitive folk audience. Yeah. Uh, again, the record is called Urban Driftwood. It's by Yasmin Williams. I also have to do a quick shout out to uh, the new Vampire Weekend EP, uh, which is uh, two covers of the song 2021, including a 20 minute and 21 song <laughs> cover by the jam band Goose from Connecticut. So just to get some jam band shout outs yeah, when... into IndieCast, I always like to do that when I can. So. Yeah. With the, uh, go check that out. With the Asmund Williams album, um, one of my friends actually, who's like totally not in that primitive John Fahey uh, realm, he like texted me. He's like, you know what? This sounds more like Joe Satriani to me than like John Fahey. So, and I'm like, yeah, there is kind of some surf in the alien vibes. I, I dig this record too. Um, yeah, yeah, and like, and, and she actually got into guitar from playing Guitar Hero Two. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like there is some sort of like at least sort of like ambient metal influence maybe on what she's doing even if like it doesn't really come across all that much musically on the record but yeah definitely there are ghosts of of, of joe satriani and john fahey coming together on this record uh which i think makes it really cool uh so we have now reached the end of our latest episode of IndieCast. thank you so much for listening we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.